Cleomenes, the son of Anaxandritus, said that Homer was the poet of the Spartans, and Hesiod of the Helots, for Homer had given the necessary directions for fighting, and Hesiod for farming. Plutarch. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece. Episode 9, This is Sparta. Last time we looked at the early history and development of Sparta as a physical city, as well as some of the events that were shaping their early development. The city of Sparta was relatively new, only coming into existence in the Dark or Early Iron Age, around 1000 BC. It had formed from the union of four villages in close proximity, and then eventually including a fifth, showing the gradual recovery of the area after the onset of the Dark Ages, with the settlements most likely experiencing an increase in populations. We also briefly looked into the early developments Sparta was going through that would set them apart from most other city-states. Then we looked at the early conflicts that Sparta was engaging in that would see them become one of the leading powers in the Peloponnese, but with Argos still a rival. Now that we have an understanding of how the polis of Sparta developed, we're going to turn to look at the institutions that came into being at Sparta. These institutions would shape and guide the Spartan politics and society for many generations to come, and even project their reputation all the way to our own times. Sparta would attribute the foundation of their constitution to a legendary and mysterious figure named Lycurgus. We will look at what was written about him to start the episode off before looking at the constitution and the institutions that would follow. We will then pick up the Spartan story of the mid to late archaic period, up until just before the outbreak of the Persian Wars. We will then see their continued interactions with other city-states on the Peloponnese, and in wider Greece, including another important city, Athens, who would also take centre stage in our story. This will then give us a good understanding of who the Spartans were and why they acted as they did, as we continue the narrative into and beyond the Persian Wars. We have a lot of stuff to cover this episode, so I think we'll just jump straight into things, starting off with a legendary figure of Lycurgus, who was instrumental in the creation of the Spartan Way. Like with most legendary figures in Greek history, it is not certain when Lycurgus existed, if he existed at all, and if everything claimed to be attributed to him, if he was a real person, can be. The most complete picture that we have of Lycurgus is from Plutarch, though we need to keep in mind that Plutarch's biographies are full of anecdotes and he was writing around the beginning of the 2nd century AD, perhaps a thousand years after Lycurgus is supposed to have lived. Plutarch acknowledges the challenge of putting together Lycurgus's biography when he says, There is so much uncertainty in the accounts which historians have left us of Lycurgus, the lawgiver of Sparta, that scarcely anything is asserted by one of them which is not called into question or contradicted by the rest. So with this in mind, we'll have a brief look at how Lycurgus is portrayed, knowing that it was the legend of Lycurgus that was important to the Spartans, not so much the historical realities, which we are not going to know for sure anyway. To the Spartans, Lycurgus is an extremely important figure to the foundation of their way of life and is represented as a wise man who gave them their laws. Many dates have been given to when Lycurgus lived, but these range from the 10th century BC up to the 6th century BC. Though in our times, there seems to be a lot more support to when Thucydides places him, which would be in the last part of the 9th century. Lycurgus, a member of the royal house, was portrayed as a just man before becoming Sparta's lawgiver. He had been offered the throne after the death of the king, who was his older brother. Lycurgus's brother had left behind a pregnant wife, and once the child was born, Lycurgus handed over the kingship. 
though this had not stopped the jealousy and rumours from emerging from the new king's mother and her family, who accused Lycurgus of plotting to kill the new king. Lycurgus decided the best course of action was to remove himself from the position where he could be blamed for any wrongdoing, to where he imposed a sort of exile upon himself and went on travels around the Mediterranean world. This would again give the new king time to grow up and father his own son, therefore securing succession amongst his own line. The tales of his travels give legitimacy to his laws and himself as a lawgiver, as they show how he encountered different societies and was able to study their customs and laws to where he could compare them. He would then be able to decide what to borrow, mould and what to ignore. It is said that he travelled to Crete, who were also Dorians, and studied the laws of King Minos, giving a shared link to the oldest Greek civilization and their laws. He then travelled to Asia Minor, which was home to a number of Ionian Greek cities, to where he compared the disciplined nature of the Dorians to the luxurious lifestyles of the Ionians, with Plutarch drawing parallels to how a physician compares healthy and diseased bodies. Here, like Hercus, is also supposed to have discovered the works of Homer, to where he compiled the fragments and extracted the moral lessons so he could pass them on. He then travelled to Egypt, where he learnt the lessons of separating the military from the rest of the working population to create a standing army. His other travels were also supposed to have included India and Spain. It seems that the jealousy and intrigue continued in Sparta after Lycurgus's departure. It appears that with a child waiting to come of age to rule in his own right, there may have been some other claims to the throne. Not that we know for sure, but the legend that has come down to us seems to be relating a time of social upheaval and unrest with a search for stability. This stability is represented in the Spartans recalling the just behaviour the now wise Lycurgus, and sending word for his return. With the problems at hand, Lycurgus had decided if he was to return, fundamental changes in Spartan society would need to take place. With such radical changes at hand, Lycurgus visited the one place that could convince the people of the importance of the new laws, and that was the Oracle of Delphi. Lycurgus asked for guidance and received a glowing endorsement from the god Apollo, which would gain him support from the leading men of Sparta. The oracle reportedly said that the first state to observe the laws of Lycurgus would become the most famous in the world. Once Lycurgus had enough support, 30 of the leading men met in the marketplace to enact change. We will soon get into the institutions that have been credited to Lycurgus, but we will first just finish off what has been relayed about his life. Supposedly with the advice and the leading men who would be known as the ephors, Lycurgus implemented his reforms incrementally. Once he was satisfied with what had been put in place, he called for an assembly of Spartan citizens before he set out once again to Delphi, where this time he would make a sacrifice to Apollo. Once he had the people gathered, he made them all take an oath that they would observe the laws until he returned. Once he departed and had returned to Delphi, he then disappears from history. Some have surmised that he starved himself to death so that the people of Sparta would have to keep their oath indefinitely. This summary is the basic outline of what has come down to us from Plutarch. It is also interesting to note that Herodotus also relays some information about Lycurgus, though not as colourfully. Herodotus, who was writing some 500 years earlier than Plutarch, talks about a tradition where Lycurgus received the constitution from Delphi, but then also talks about how the Lacedaemonians of his time believed Lycurgus brought back to Sparta the lessons he had learnt from Crete. Herodotus also says that once becoming regent, Acting in place of the infant king, he took the opportunity to implement his changes. Now we have seen what has been relayed about Lycurgus as a figure, 
What was he credited with implementing and reforming in Sparta? Ultimately, Lycurgus is credited with bringing to Sparta its new constitution that he brought back from Delphi. This constitution was known as the Great Rutra, which literally translates to the Great Saying or Proclamation. This Rutra only survives now through fragments handed down by ancient authors, and a most complete reconstruction comes from Plutarch, who relates the following. After that you've built a temple to Jupiter Helianaeus and to Minerva Helania, and after that you have phylaed the people into phylaes and obeyed them into obeys, and shall, from time to time, Apelazine, the people betwixt Babica and Sanachion, there propound and put to the vote. The commons have the final voice and decision. Okay, so what does this all mean? Well, let's try and break it down. The first thing we need to remember is that Plutarch was a Roman, so the gods he refers to, Jupiter and Minerva, were the Roman versions of Zeus and Athena. So the first part refers to building the temples to honour these gods. The next part refers to dividing the people into tribes by the leaders, being their kings. They were then to assemble at particular times between two locations, one being at Babica, which was a bridge, and a river named Zanachion. And here at this assembly, matters could be voted on by the people. This represents a small portion of what the Spartan constitution was, but much more made up Spartan social and political life. So we'll now turn to the different institutions that made up Spartan life and which were nearly all credited to Lycurgus, the lawgiver. I think it will be helpful to quickly go back over how Spartan society was set up. We have covered some of this previously, but it would be good to have a refresh before dealing with the institutions. The polis of Sparta grew out of four main villages, and eventually a fifth. The Spartan citizens were then divided up into three tribes within each area. This is the dividing up Philae that Plutarch talks about. So this has the Spartiates grouped into three different tribes amongst five areas within the Spartan polis. Now we have talked about Spartiates before, and this leads us into the basic setup of the social classes in Sparta. The Spartiates were full Spartan citizens, and we will talk about how they obtained this status in a bit. The next class down was known as the Perioiki, which translates to those who dwell around. These were free people that lived in Spartan territory, but were not considered citizens. The Perioiki were still liable to serve in the military, but had no political say in Spartan affairs. The next class we have covered a bit, last episode, was the Helic class, who were basically the state-owned slaves that came from conquered lands the Spartans moved into. These people were for the most part Greeks themselves, which in the Greek world was an exception to the rule when it came to slavery. The Helots far outnumbered the Spartiates, and were a constant threat of a revolt throughout much of Spartan history. Here I just want to clarify that when I use the word Spartan, we can assume I'm talking about full Spartan citizens, just to keep things simple. Sparta was an oligarchy, which means power rested with a small number of people. As we discussed in the previous episode, Sparta was ruled by two kings, who were hereditary, and always came from two family lines. The Agiad and Eurypontid families. The Spartan king's duties were mainly military, judicial and religious, but sole power did not lie with just them. The king shared power with five ephors, which can be translated to overseer. These ephors were elected annually by popular assembly from the Spartan citizenry. Once elected, they could only hold office once, and their role included legislative, financial, and judicial duties. Another political institution that developed early on, 
and is seen as one of Lycurgus's early reforms from Plutarch's account, is that of the Gerousia. The Gerousia was a council of elders, which was made up of 30 members, where 28 of them had to be over the age of 60, while the two remaining members were the kings, who could be of any age. A mission into the Gerousia was by vote. A group of men sat in another building, or in an area away from proceedings, and would judge who obtained the loudest support without knowing who each candidate was. The Gerousia played two main functions. Firstly, it debated motions that would be put forward in the Citizen Assembly. Secondly, it also acted as a Supreme Court, which could try any Spartan citizen, including the kings. Life for a Spartan, when compared to citizens of other city-states, or compared to our own times, looked very harsh, and an element of survival of the fittest was at play. This played out from the very moment a Spartan baby was born, with another role the Gerousia undertook was to examine the infant for any defects, and if any were found, the infant would be left at a base of a mountain and exposed to the elements. If the infant survived, it would be allowed to live and raised by its mother. Once a male Spartan child reached the age of seven, it was time for the state's formal education to begin. The state system of education in Sparta was the agoge, which meant the rearing. This is where the state took responsibility of educating and training all male Spartans when they reached seven years of age. This saw the child removed from the care of his mother and family setting and placed into the care of the state with his peers. Emphasis was placed on loyalty to the state, placing it of much higher importance than one's own family or self. The training was designed to produce high physical and moral strength, and no comforts were provided. We hear of not quite enough food being provided at mealtimes, and the boys having to make do with one item of clothing for all year round. There were three stages to the training of a Spartan male, to transform him into the warrior that the state desired. These three stages of training lined up with the stage of life the boy had reached. So the first stage would be conducted during childhood, the second when they were teenagers, and the third as young adults. The details of the training in each of these stages has not come down to us, but what has been repeated by ancient authors is that much testing and many competitions were conducted. It appears that upon reaching the second stage of training, the intensity and frequency of these competitions increased, which would prepare them for the third stage, which is where their military careers began. During the training, once they had breached the second stage, an older male figure would be paired with the boys, known as an inspirer or lover. Although there was a physical element to these relationships, the main function was for knowledge and ethics to be passed down to the boy. This relationship seems to be where things such as history, literacy, and other subjects would be considered education were taught. We can see from one anecdote that has been passed down about how serious a relationship was taken. During one of the brutally physical contests, a Spartan boy yelled out in pain. And for this breach of self-discipline under the Spartan code, it was not the boy who was punished, but his inspirer. We also hear of stealth being a very important part of the training to where the boys were encouraged to go out at night and steal food to supplement their diets. This also carried over to adulthood, where a Spartan was still required to live with his peers until the age of 30, but he would most likely also be married, so visiting his wife would be done under the cover of darkness. If he was caught, he was not punished for the act of theft or leaving his peers, but for being caught and not skillful enough in his attempt. As we said, once the pupil reached the third stage of training, he began his military career. These young men usually made up the front ranks of a hoplite phalanx. It was from these young men that a number would be chosen to serve in the shady institution known as the cryptia. Cryptia translates to something like hidden or secret things. 
There is much up in the air still about what its function served, but it appears to be some sort of secret police. Plutarch relates how every year the Ephors would declare war on the Helot population, making it legal for a Spartan to murder them. The members of the Cryptia would be tasked with seeking out the strongest and smartest Helots and dispatching them all within the shadows in an effort to prevent a leadership group emerging amongst them to lead a revolt. Stealth and secrecy again were a major focus which might explain why we know very little of this institution. In this last stage of training, at around the age of 20, a Spartan was required to become a member of a mess or a club called a Sassitia. The current members would vote on whether the proposed candidate would be accepted in, and if a single vote came up in the negative, it was enough to deny entry into the chosen mess. If a young Spartan was unable to secure membership into a mess, this could mean the end of their training and the status as a full Spartan citizen. Members of a particular mess were required to spend most of their time with this group, dining, training and occupying the barracks with them. A Spartan was expected to also be married at this stage, but he would have barely seen his wife except for the infrequent visits when employing his stealth. It wasn't uncommon for him to have children and not have seen his wife's face in the daytime during this period. Once a member of a mess, it was also essential to maintain his membership by providing a share to the rations each month which would go into making the infamous black broth, supposedly made up of pork, salt, vinegar and animal blood, and the main staple of the Spartan diet. This period between the ages of 20 and 30 is when a Spartan was completely devoted to the military. His entire life was preparing for war. All of his time was spent with his comrades and only infrequent visits behind everyone's back to his family when his time wasn't needed for the state. He existed for the group. These young men were the front line of the Spartan army and maintained the helot population in check. Once reaching 30, he would be eligible to take part in political life and would be able to live with his family. Between the ages of 30 and 60, the Spartan would still be required to serve in the army but would be amongst the reserve ranks. So every male born into Sparta that wanted to be a full citizen and take part in political life later on had to go through the agoge and had to be successful. It was a long, hard, brutal road but was designed to produce the type of warrior the Spartans needed to defend their homeland and eventually help lead it. Many boys and young men would have failed, been seriously injured and killed during the process. There was an exception to participating in the Goge, and that was only given to the oldest boys in the royal family lines. Presumably, this was due to the harshness and testifies to how dangerous the training could be, though it may also be in part to the fact that if one of the royal heirs was to fail, this would reduce the stature of the family line it came from. So now we have seen a good snapshot of how the institutions of Sparta played out, we will turn to what life was like for women in this brutal war society. Like everything else in Sparta, the treatment of women in society was very different to much of the rest of Greece. We haven't covered the life of women in general in Greece, but basically, they were not able to own property or take part in political life. Their role was to manage the household and were required to be chaperoned when out in public. We will cover this in more detail in future episodes, but for now, that gives us a little to contrast to the life of Spartan women. From birth, Spartan girls were on a much more even footing with their brothers, to where they were fed the same and were also given educational opportunities. The focus of their education was on physical and moral strength, as they were expected to rear strong, healthy babies, and it was believed that their own state of mind and body would affect any offspring with Spartan society resting on the strength and discipline of its standing army, it was essential that any male babies born would be strong and healthy. 
We hear from some sources where the girls would exercise with the boys, with references to being made to the Gymnopedia, or the Festival of the Naked Youths. This was an annual athletics competition where both boys and girls could compete in the same festival, unlike what will happen with the Olympic Games, where women were barred from competing, and married women from even attending. Most of the Greek world, as well as the ancient world, do not allow their women to move freely amongst the rest of society without some sort of restriction, such as being chaperoned when out in public, and dressed in clothing that protected modesty. In Sparta, women wore a short tunic that had a split up the leg to allow free movement. We hear of Spartan women earning themselves a nickname, thigh flashes, from the men of other Greek city-states. Girls in Sparta also married later than elsewhere in Greece. It was common for a girl to be married off by the age of 12 or 13. Though in Sparta, the normal age was into the late teens. This was because of their desire for strong, healthy babies. Though like the rest of the Greek world, they had no choice in who they were to be married to. This was left to the closest male relative to decide. Spartan women were also literate, and as well as maintaining the household, they had to manage the economics of the house and its interactions with the state. As their husbands could be away from home for long periods, it was essential that the economics ran smoothly at home, and also thought that women might have had a greater knowledge of numbers than their husbands. Also on the economic side of things, the women of Sparta could own property, which many did. Property was not only left to the sons in a family, of the next closest male relative, but the daughters also inherited. So this gives us a brief look at how women fared in Spartan society. But now I want to turn to the historical events that were taking place and that would lead to Sparta's dominance in the Peloponnese and the foundation of what would be known as the Peloponnesian League. Last episode, we saw Sparta engaging in wars and skirmishes with its neighbours, where they were able to extend their influence within the Peloponnese to become one of the strongest cities there. Argos, though, was still a rival and would continue to challenge Sparta for dominance, with hostilities continuing between them. Sparta would continue to engage in other conflicts and diplomacy that would cement their place as a dominant power, while also establishing their military reputation. We left off last time with Sparta putting down the revolt that the Messenians started, kicking off the Second Messenian War, and the defeat at Hisia at the hands of Argos. So let's now continue on looking at what the Spartans were up to. Somewhere around the mid-6th century BC, the Spartans had set their focus on the region of Arcadia, a region in the central Peloponnese. The Spartans had the intention of subjugating the inhabitants and also turning them into helots. Though before invading, they had consulted the Delphic Oracle and received the following reply. Arcadia, great is the thing you ask, I will not grant it. In Arcadia are many men, acorn eaters, and they will keep you out. Yet, for I am not grudging, I will give you to gear to dance in stamping feet, and her fair plane to measure out with the line. The Spartans took this advice and set their sights on the city of Tegea, within the region of Arcadia. They were under the impression that they had been handed this prize by Apollo, so they took chains with them for their new contingent of slaves. Once again, we have pretty much no information on the battle itself, except that the Spartans were defeated. The chains that they brought along with them were used to fetter the Spartans that were captured after the defeat. The oracle being fulfilled with the Spartans dancing with stamping feet, working as a chain gang in the plains. With the failure in bringing Tegea under control, Sparta changed tact and used diplomacy to move themselves into a position of hegemon of the Peloponnese. A tale Herodotus tells us of the recovery of Orestes' bones from Tegean soil back to Sparta, 
is supposedly the point where Sparta would only be victorious in the Peloponnese from now on. Remembering Orestes was the son of the slain Agamemnon, who took revenge on his mother, Clytemnestra. What would result from this change of tact is what we call today the Peloponnesian League, the Tegeans being one of the first members. It seems as the development of the League continued, it had Sparta at the head, with all the other members swearing an oath to them. The other members had no responsibility towards each other, just to Sparta. Although it would seem from this that the members were just client states to Sparta, the members still had much freedom within the League, and the larger cities could even influence Spartan policy. Eventually the League would be made up of most of the cities within the Peloponnese, hence its name, though with Argos a notable exception. Other cities over time would also become members, from areas such as Boeotia, Phocis, and even parts of Attica. The members would generally only meet when offensives were being planned by Sparta, though cities' religious obligations could free them from their oath to assist. There are even instances where larger city-states refused to take part with no ramifications taking place afterwards. Although the Spartans had now turned to diplomacy to spread their influence and protect themselves, they were still prepared to engage in wars. Argos had defeated them at Hysia in 669 BC, and the next recorded battle between the two took place in 546 BC, known as the Battle of the Champions. This battle began not with standing armies, but with 300 of the best warriors selected by both sides to decide the conflict as if they had gone back in time to the Bronze Age. The battle went in this direction as both sides agreed that it would save lives in the long run. To ensure neither side would interfere with the battle, both sides marched back to their home regions. The 300 champions on both sides then engaged. The battle went on for hours, until nightfall. By that time, only three men remained, two Argives and one Spartan. The Argives assumed victory was theirs, and returned to Argos. The Spartan remained on the battlefield, stripped the armour and weapons from the Argive dead, and took them back to camp. The next day, both armies returned to the field, where both claimed victory. The Argives, because they had the most survivors, while the Spartans claimed victory, due to still holding the battlefield, and the Argives retreated from it. This standoff continued for some time, until it was obvious that there would be no agreement. This then saw a full-scale battle develop between both sides, where many men on either side were lost. Eventually the Spartan army emerged victorious, and gained control over the contested territory between the two, while also extinguishing their past shameful defeat. The next time that Sparta would engage in battle was 50 years later, at the Battle of Sepia in 494 BC. Argos still existed as its own polis, and was one of the Peloponnesian city-states that had not become part of the Peloponnesian League. This time around, it seems Sparta was looking to attack the city of Argos itself, maybe motivated by the fact that they were remaining neutral to a growing threat that was now emerging in the east, that of Persia, while most other Greek city-states were spousing anti-Persian sentiments, though Sparta probably didn't need much of an excuse to go to war with their long-time arch-rival. Sparta was armed with an oracle that told them of taking Argos. After some manoeuvring and sacrifices were conducted, the Spartans and Argive camps were drawn up opposite each other. Due to a warning and a prophecy that Argos received, they were making sure they followed suit in the orders that the Spartan camp were giving so they would not be caught off guard. After some time, it was noticed in the Spartan camp what was taking place, so the army was instructed when the order for taking the midday meal was given the men would instead grab their weapons and form up for battle. When the signal for the meal was sounded, the Argives did the same, but the Spartans rushed to pit arms and marched on the Argive camp, catching them unprepared for battle. 
Many men were slaughtered in the camp, but the survivors were able to take refuge in a wooded grove. The Spartans were able to learn the names of many men who were held up in the grove, and the king Cleomenes, who we'll be hearing more of in coming episodes, devised a plan to have them leave the sanctuary. To kill someone who had taken refuge in a religious temple or a sanctuary was considered to be sacrilege in the Greek world. Cleomenes would have the names of the men read out one by one and announce that their ransom had been paid, which allowed them to go free. Though as the men emerged and went towards the Spartan lines, they were killed upon reaching them. Around 50 Argives had left the grove in this manner until one of them had climbed a tree and was able to see what was taking place. The rest of the Argives refused to leave now, so Cleomenes ordered for wood to be piled around the sanctuary and set alight, killing the rest of the Argives. As we'll see in future episodes, Cleomenes' actions would be used to explain his own demise in the future. The wooded grove that the Spartans had captured was found out to be sacred to the hero Argos and shared the same name, fulfilling the prophecy that Sparta would capture Argos. This made them very uneasy about continuing to the city of Argos. Instead, most of the army was sent back to Sparta. Argos, though, would not present a threat to Sparta for some generations to come, as they had suffered very badly in the last couple of wars, losing many fighting-age men, with 6,000 falling at Sepia. There are other later accounts that also suggest that the Spartans did in fact march on Argos after the battle, where a distinguished woman, Telesilla, also a poet, arranged a defence of the city, with the women and men not fit to fight. Their determination to defend the city in the battle, as well as the Spartans' uneasiness of attacking women, saw the Spartans abandon the attack. This episode has been viewed with some scepticism due to the amount of time between the event and the sources, as well as archaeology calling into question some of the details presented. Though it does appear Telesilla did emerge as an influential figure in Argos, helping to lead them through the ensuring crisis Argos faced for decades to come. It's worthwhile to note here that the events around Sepia are what Herodotus presents. Plutarch relates a different lead-up to the battle, with supposedly a seven-day truce in effect. But on the third night, Cleomenes attacked taking the aggrieved army by surprise. And when reproached for breaking the oath, Cleomenes responded that knights not had been included in the truce. As we have seen, just about all of Sparta's military campaigning had been around their own region in the Peloponnese. But in 525 BC, between the wars with Argos, they would embark on a campaign that would take them just short of being on the soil of Asia. This campaign was directed at the island of Samos, only about one and a half kilometres off the coast of Anatolia. To bring the Spartans this far from home, some pretty important factors must have been at play for the campaign to be launched. It's not known for certain what triggered the campaign, but we get some reasons from the ancient accounts. With a friendship established during this period between the Spartans and Croesus, the king of Lydia, the gift of a large bronze mixing bowl had been sent to Croesus, which never made it, but had turned up in a temple on Samos. So it is thought that the seeds of the campaign may have laid with the theft of this gift. Also, Samos had had a recent regime change, with the tyrant Polycrates ruling the island now. We hear of the Samnian exiles approaching Sparta for aid and overthrowing him and re-establishing the old order. Why the Samnians approached Sparta has been explained as either strong ties that had existed between the old ruling class families and of Spartans. Or, during the Second Mycenaean War, Samos, under the old order, had been one of Sparta's allies, so there was an obligation to repay the alliance. Whatever the reason, the Spartans had launched a navy, something that must have been unfamiliar to them. Though the polis of Corinth, on the isthmus that connects the Peloponnese to the rest of Greece, had also assisted in the campaign. 
so perhaps they had taken care of the naval side of things, since they had a seafaring background. After landing on Samos, some early successes were achieved, but the campaign ended up turning into a siege. Being so far from home, morale and logistics would have started to become a factor for the Spartans. After 40 days, supplies were low, and the campaign was called off. The result of this expedition may well influence the Spartans' thinking when approached again for aid in far-off campaigns, as we shall see in future episodes. By the late 6th century, two kings were ruling at Sparta that we start to hear a lot more about in the written sources. They were Cleomenes and Demaratus. Cleomenes would end up mutilated in his prison cell in Sparta, while Demaratus would end up in the Persian court as an advisor. The stories that would unfold during their reign I will leave to develop as we continue on, as they become interconnected with Athens' story as they develop through this period. At this point, Sparta could be considered to be the preeminent polis within Greece, which can be seen from Croesus, the king of Lydia, a kingdom in Anatolia, having approached Sparta from a view of friendship, presumably to assist in the threat that the rise of Persia on his doorstep presented. We will be looking more at Croesus and Lydia in a few episodes' time when looking at the rise of Persia. Also, when the Ionian Revolt broke out in western Anatolia at the beginning of the 5th century, Sparta was the first polis that the Ionians tried to gain support from. Sparta had reached this point in history, first through their union of settlements within the Eurotas Valley. Then military campaigns further spread their influence outside of the valley, where they would capture and enslave the population in these newly acquired territories. This would then lock them into a system that their economy depended on, which saw their constitution and institutions develop to help keep the system viable. What resulted was a polis that was looking very different to what was developing elsewhere in Greece. They continued their campaigning in the Peloponnese, which produced mixed results. Once they started using diplomacy in conjunction with their military, they were then able to emerge as a dominant power within the Peloponnese and gain international renown. This now brings us to a point with Sparta, near the eve of the Ionian Revolt, and what would begin the Greek and Persian Wars. Though before we pick up the narrative going into this period, we still need to look at Athens and Persia's rise. The next couple of episodes, we'll be focusing on the rise of Athens, where we'll see how another city-state that would become the other major player in Greek affairs would develop very differently socially and politically. Many of the institutions and ideas that would develop and mature in Athens would end up in our modern world today in some form. Thank you for your continued support. To receive updates and to be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe at castingthroughancientgreece.com. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. I hope you can join me next time for episode 10, The City of Theseus.